There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Carol Burnett earned a Golden Globe nod as Miss Hannigan in the 1982 movie musical Annie, which is being revived tonight on NBC. I spoke with her about the iconic role in 2016 when she called in to promote her guest role on the new Hawaii Five-0. Hello, Jason. Hello, Carol Burnett. This is quite How are the tr- you? good, quite the treat for a random Thursday. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. So, uh, sure. obviously, we're here to talk. I guess it's a guest role, although I think your returning is in the new right. Hawaii. This will be the third time I've been on as. Uh, McGarrett's aunt on Hawaii Five O. Yes, this is the new Hawaii Five O um, on CBS. Mm-hmm. And um, w- when was the first time you you uh, played the role, and the second, and now I the think third? It was about two years ago. Okay. So I've been on every year since then. This, as I say, this is my third appearance. Our storyline is I I've come back uh, after I had been away for a while, and uh, I have a bucket list of stuff that I want to do before <laughs> I cash it in. So that's that's the storyline. And um so it's uh, it's funny but it's also bittersweet. Gotcha. Why do you why do you keep coming back? I mean a lot of people guest star just once, but what keeps bringing you well, back to fire? They asked me and I said I love the writing. I like the show very much and I'm crazy about Alex who plays McGarrett mm-hmm. and we have some good scenes together and uh both off and on we have uh off-camera and on-camera, we have a very good rapport. Awesome. I know the original Hawaii Five-0 started, I think, in 68, right around the same time as Carol, your show, which is Carol Burnett's show, in 67. Were you? Did you watch the original one? Were you a fan oh, while, you yes. were do, while you were doing your show Welcome, as well? Welcome, Dano. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I was a guest star, not on that, but years later, I was on uh, uh, Magnum, mm-hmm. and that's when I first met Larry Minetti, who uh, was on that show. And Larry has a running role now on uh, Hawaii Five O. So it was he who got me in touch with uh, the producer of Hawaii Five O, and they uh, said, "Will you come on and get in the sandbox and play with us?" So I was really happy to do that. Man, few people must be as fun to play in the sandbox as you, because <laughs> you're outside <laughs> the box. <laughs> <laughs> That is great. So I, I I had no idea. So that actually dates back to a Magnum PI connection. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then you've done appearances all the way up through, I think, Glee. I mean, you've been all over stuff. Um, yeah. Speaking of remakes like Hawaii Five-0, I know your your legendary role as Miss Hannigan and Annie. That just got remade, too. What's your take on, on these old classics getting remade? Is there a place for it? How do you do it right? Well, I, you know, I don't really know. Uh, it, it, it depends. Uh, you know, some, sometimes I think they're probably pretty good, and sometimes I think they should be left alone. Like, there are certain... Movies that shouldn't, like, okay, a classic, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, 
Right. I don't think you can do that any better than what it was. You know what I'm saying? What a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's funny you say that because uh, Gone with the Wind wasn't untouchable for you. <laughs> well, it wasn't exactly a remake. <laughs> it was a total send-up. Exactly. You know? Our excuse was that at that time when we were doing it, uh, it was going to be shown on television. No, no. It was going to be shown, and the, they redid it, you know, the color and all of that, and mm -hmm. uh, made the print better, and so it was going to be re-released in the movie theaters. So our premise was, for those of you who can't sit through it for four hours, we'll do it for you now in about 20 minutes. <laughs> it was brilliantly written by uh, two of our young writers, uh, and um, then, of course, the iconic costume that Bob Mackie came up with, Can't Be Beat, you know, it was one of... The funniest sight gags on television ever when he came up with the idea of putting the curtain rod in that mm. dress. Was that thing uncomfortable? It was heavy. <laughs> it was heavy, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't in it that long in the sketch. You yeah, know? Yeah. It was just really coming down the stairs and stuff. But, uh, oh, my gosh, nobody had seen it until we were taping, you know, and the uh, crew and, of course, the audience, they was a major, major laugh. No one could keep it together, even on set. Um, it was hard. <laughs> How did you keep it together? <laughs> I was biting the inside of my cheek. <laughs> to awesome. keep from laughing because I didn't want to spoil it. You know, we, uh, we broke up a lot, but, uh, but we never intended to or wanted to. It was usually Tim Conway's fault. I know, man. I'm sure that's probably one of the sketches that most people come up to you about. Which other ones? Are there any other ones from the show that everyone brings up all the time? Oh, they talk about the family, you know, with Eunice and mm. Dad and Mama, that highly dysfunctional <laughs> trio. <laughs> and um, the movie takeoffs, again, uh, and uh, um, the dumb secretary, Mrs. Wiggins, and Mr. Tudball, which <laughs> Tim created. He wrote those. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, different ones. And, you know, we're all over YouTube, and I'm getting fan mail from 10-year-olds. It's just wonderful. Is there one that's, you know, the uh, the famous ones you, you listed with the family and, uh, you know, the curtain rod, but is there any one that you thought kind of went overlooked that was more of a personal favorite of yours? Uh, no, I, I, actually, we got really good, uh, good response from when we did um, a pillow talk, a takeoff on that. We did a takeoff on... Mildred Pierce, the From Here to Eternity, Double Indemnity, all those good old movies that were, you know, in the 40s. Oh, yeah. Three of my yeah. favorites. <laughs> yeah, they were great. And, uh, you know, who was wonderful as a guest? He, he was a brilliant comedic actor, Steve Lawrence. Yeah, And yeah. he was in, like, we did African Queen, we did Double Indemnity with him, wow. and From Here to Eternity, and he was just hysterical. He used to say, if you run long, cut my song, but don't cut the sketch. <laughs> That's great. You mentioned um, Double Indemnity, and obviously you worked with Billy Wilder on the front page, and you, yeah. you mentioned um, African Queen, and you worked with John Houston on Annie, obviously. Right. Um, if, before we go, do you, let me let me just throw out a couple of these uh, names of these great filmmakers you work with, and and just tell me, you know, the first thing that you that you remember in them. Like, what do you remember working with John Houston? What what was his secret? He would do maybe one take, and then it would be it. He was very planned out. He knew exactly what he wanted, and I don't think we did more than two takes, you know, on in a scene. And one of my favorite pieces of direction he ever gave that he gave me was the first day I was going to be shooting a scene. And I went up to him and I said, Mr. Houston, how, how do you want me to play this? How do you see me doing this? And he said, just cavort, dear. 
<laughs> the guy was such a genius and a great actor too. I mean, Chinatown and everything else. But. Oh yeah. What about Billy Wilder? What? How did he maybe differ from Houston? He again, uh, he never did coverage mm. of anything. He would. Just, he knew how if he was going to have a scene with a bunch of people in it, that would be it. He wouldn't go and do the scene over and over again with close-ups of anybody. Or if it was going to be a close-up of Jack Lemmon, that was it mm-hmm. for that scene. You know, so he he had it all planned out. Man, that's great. And then you had Peter Bogdanovich in Noises Off. What was his uh, what was his trademark for you? His trick. Well, I just loved his stories that he would tell. Yeah. He loved telling stories, and he was he was very uh, very sweet. Actually, Peter was very sweet. And then uh, also Alan Alda directed you too, right? Four seasons. Oh yeah, yeah. He he wore several hats for that film. Uh, he was uh, the writer, the director, and the star, and I think a co-producer of the Four Seasons. Wow. Yeah. And then, I loved working with um, Robert Altman. Oh, the guy was... Do you have a favorite Altman movie other than the one you were in? Uh, I think probably Nash and Nashville. God, they're so great. Yeah. <laughs> they, they repay on repeat viewings, you know? You see all the people in the background doing different things. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. No, and he, he loved it if you improvised. Yeah, with yeah, definitely. Planting all the mics on all the characters. Oh, it's just great That's ensemble right. stuff. Great stuff. That's right, yeah. He, he got us all together before we were going to do a wedding, or, you know, the whole cast, and he said something I'd never heard a director say before or since. He said, if any of you have an idea for a, a, a scene that you're doing for dialogue or how you want to play it or something, I want you to come to me with your suggestion because some of the best scenes I've ever had in my movies have been uh, brought to me by the actors. Isn't that something? Is it? Is wow. But then he said, you know, either I'll do it, I'll take your idea, or I won't. But I do want you to come to me with any suggestion you might have. Do you find that was the case on, you know, with comedy too? Not just these films, but like even on your show, the, the idea of improv oh, sure. friendly? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I have to give our writers credit because, uh, you know, nowadays uh, there's so many writers, they, they don't want you to change one word. Right. But uh, we be rehearsing and uh, maybe Harvey would come up with a thought or Tim or me or Vicky and we said well let's try that and we'd show it to the writers and uh, they would say hey that made it funnier thank you <laughs> you've listed a lot of these classic filmmakers but did you have like a comedy idol when you were growing up well for me um you know I didn't watch <laughs> back in the covered wagon days I didn't grow up on television <laughs> and so by the time I uh, was really watching anything regularly. I was in New York living uh, in a boarding house, um, and I would watch Caesar's Hour every Saturday. So Sid Caesar oh. was, to me, he, he was an idol. And I think, you know, when I got my show, I wanted it to be like the Gary Moore show that I was on mm-hmm. as a second banana, but also like Sid, you know, to have a rep company and to have. Uh, do sketches and takeoffs and movie things and movie takeoffs and stuff like that. And that's what I, I really love doing. But Sid, uh, Sid's show really was my favorite. Absolutely. Well, six Emmys and two Golden Globes later. I think. Uh, can, can you can you look back? I mean, can you look if you were you know your childhood self and you saw all the success? Would you just not even believe it? I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I never dreamed. You know, because as a kid, I. I wanted to be a cartoonist, and then later I wanted to be a journalist. So the bug didn't bite uh, it for me with show business until I got to uh, UCLA. 
yeah, I never dreamed I would wind up doing this, but I'm sure happy I did. <laughs> I And I joined the Daily Bruin, you know, but uh, then I took a class in theater arts English because it offered uh, writing courses, playwriting courses. Gotcha. But then being freshman, you had to take, if you majored in theater arts, you had to take uh, scenery, lighting, mm-hmm. and acting. And so I got into this acting class, and I did this funny scene, and I heard heard the laughs, and I thought, oh, that's, that's really nice. <laughs> and so that's, that's when it happened. You were hooked. But the, is the cartoonist still come out every now and then? Do you doodle yeah, on the script do, pages? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll send, uh, for charity, you know, I get a lot of requests, uh, uh, request to do a doodle or something, you know, and I'll do that. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you, well, uh, you. doodling on Hawaii Five-O here. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thank you, darling. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Carol Burnett on WTOP. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Burnett called in again in 2019 when she performed at Strathmore shortly after the passing of Tim Conway from The Carol Burnett Show. Hey, thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. There's so much I want to ask you about your career and the late Tim Conway, but uh, let, let's start with Strathmore here. What's the setup here? Is it an audience interaction, video clips? Break it down for me. Well, it's really a conversation with the audience, you know, the way I used to do open my show with doing Q&A, questions and answers. And... Um, uh, there's there are no plan or pre-planned questions at all. It, it's just kind of random. I'm flying without a net, which really makes it more fun. And uh, so we just uh, I, I I start the show by uh, showing about mm, eight eight minutes, eight or nine minutes of some of my favorite uh, Q and A's from the show. So that gets the audience acquainted with how the evening is going to go. And then I come out and uh, we bump up the lights and uh, uh, we have ushers with microphones who, uh, and so when I call on somebody, if they raise their hand, I'll call them and the ushers get get a mic to them and then they ask a question and we're off and running. Awesome. So they're not writing questions ahead of time. You're you're pulling them out of a hat or something. It's It's right there live in the theater. Totally, yeah, and I've said this before, it keeps the old gray matter ticking. (laughs) (laughs) I have to, I can't be thinking about what I did yesterday or what I might do tomorrow. I've got to really be in the now. So it's it's a great exercise for the brain, and uh, I I just have a lot of fun doing it. And lots of times there there are the same questions that I get. You know, it just depends on uh, who I, I call on, you know. But the most common uh, uh, questions are, um, why do you pull? Why did you pull your ear at the end of the show? Uh, 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 do the Tarzan yell? How did that come about? Was Tim Conway as funny in real life as he was on the show? Right, right. Uh, how did I find Vicky and Harvey and things like that? And, and then you know, then just other random questions, and um, I I really enjoy it. That's great. Well, I don't want you to have to run through all of those for the interview, but uh, but but treat our listeners. Let's pick one of them. What's behind the ear tug? <laughs> oh, that was uh, when I a hundred years ago when I got my first job on television. I called my grandmother, nanny, who raised me, and I told her that I was going to be on TV, and I was in New York, and she was in California, and she said, "Well, say hello to me." <laughs> I said, Nanny, I don't think they're going to let me say hi, Nanny, on television, but we cooked up this signal that I would pull my left ear. I would tug <laughs> on my left ear, which meant, hi, Nanny, I love you, and uh, I'm fine, and you know. And then 
later on, as I got more successful, I would it meant, hi, Nanny, I'm fine, I love you, your check's on the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's it's that iconic signature of yours, so I love that it's based on such a sweet story that you're giving a wink to Grandma. Right, that's right. You know, she's long gone, but I still do it. Well, I'd like to think she's still tugging her ear back at you. I like beyond. to think that, too. Speaking of which, you know, in, in one of your recent acceptance speeches, uh, you, you mentioned that you grew up watching, like, eight movies a week with her, and, and you recounting getting your first TV set. You know, take take me back to those early days and how formative you think that was watching those shows with Nanny. You know, we were uh, uh, we were poor, and uh, but we would save our pennies, and way back then, you know, in the 40s when I was growing up, 40s and 50s, uh, the movies, uh, they, they didn't cost that much. I think for my grandmother it was a quarter, and for me, until I turned 12, it was uh, a dime. To go 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 to the movies, right. and then they taxed it, and then it was twenty six cents and eleven cents. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, but uh, so we were able to, and also uh, at that time they would have double features, which were set, second run after they first ran in the big theaters. Sure. So you could go and see two movies for the price of one, and uh, so on a weekend, you know, we might see. Two on Saturday and two on Sunday. So, and then sometimes uh, on Wednesday nights there would be a kino night at uh, at one of the theaters, you know, where we would go. And so th- th- I would see as many as you know, uh, four to six to eight movies a week. What what were some of them? Do, do you remember any that you loved as a kid? Oh, I loved I loved all the musicals. Uh, you know, Gene <laughs> Kelly and and uh, Mickey and Judy and Betty Grable and Rita Hayworth and those mo- those movie stars, and what was really a kick for me was that when I got my show, I got to have some of those movie stars on as a guest. It was such a thrill. You know, I grew up loving uh, uh, Betty Grable, and she was a guest, and Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner, you know, uh, Bean Crosby, uh, Donald O'Connor, you know. But the thing is, Jason, when I was growing up, the movies were not cynical. Right. There was, right. you know, they were not cynical. They were all, the bad guys lost, the good guys won. There was no gray area. There, there weren't these antiheroes like now. Not, no, no. Uh, and so everything was like, it was an imprint on me, which I think kind of saved me in a way, was that you could do anything. If Mickey and Judy, you know, like Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, in the, in the movie, put on a show in their barn. It was inevitable that it would wind up on Broadway. <laughs> that's, right. that's the way the movies were. So when I went to New York, I didn't know anybody, and I'd never been in further east in Texas, and it, where, where I was born. But I never felt that I couldn't make it. By that, I don't mean making it to be a star. I meant just that I wanted to be able to be in show business, perform, and be able to pay the rent and put food on the table and clothes on my back. That was my yeah. goal. And I, I was never scared. And I think it was because of those movies. I was too too naive or too dumb to be <laughs> to be scared. And I think that's what saved me. That helped me. I love that you say that all those movies, you know, the optimism and the joy sort of shaped your outlook, how, how everything wasn't so cynical back then, and, and the fact that it actually saved you. Do you think you went into a career of comedy, like wanting to lift people up with your show? Do like, you think that took you in that direction? I think so. I think so. Uh, I, at first, 
I was going to be a journalist, uh, and I, I went to UCLA to major in journalism, but they didn't have a major in journalism. So I um, took the writing courses, and I took I joined the school paper, and, but then I was looking through the catalog, and uh, they had a, a theater arts major, and uh, subtexts were a theater arts film, a theater arts acting, theater arts writing, Mm-hmm. Uh, theater arts English, <clears throat> so I I thought, oh, that's interesting because I love to write. So I took theater arts English because it would offer me um, playwriting courses and things like that. But unknown to me until I got there was that even if if you're fav- you know, you want to be a director or a scenery designer or whatever, <clears throat> as a freshman you had to take an acting course. Mm-hmm. And that was the farthest thing from my mind. I was eighteen. <laughs> And I had to take this acting course, and I was terrified. And there were about 14 of us in the class, and uh, I had to get up and do a monologue, you know, and it, I was just terrible. <laughs> and <clears throat> But then <laughs> later on, uh, we had to do some other scenes, and I teamed up uh, with a fellow classmate, and he and I did a scene from Noel Coward's Red Peppers, which was, uh, I think it was a one-act, and... They, they they sang, and so I just pretended to be Betty Grable with a Cockney accent. And <laughs> they laughed where they should, you know, and the teacher gave us an A, and, I, and then I got in a couple of one acts at UCLA, and uh, that went great. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm hearing people laugh, and, and it was just the greatest feeling, and I never knew that I was ever going to do that until I did it in college. And then another uh, classmate who was in the music department asked me if I could carry a tune, and I said, oh, yeah, I think so, yeah, because my mother and grandmother and I used to sing in the kitchen, and Mama would play the ukulele, and we'd harmonize and everything. So (laughs) I got uh, into the uh, music department, and they were doing a scene from – uh, South Pacific, and I was one of the nurses in, in the chorus, and, and uh, I was so loud they <laughs> took me out. And he, <laughs> and the director said, "Would you do a scene uh, with me from Guys and Dolls and and sing Adelaide's Lament, which was a very funny song uh, in that show?" And I was a little nervous about singing alone, and. Uh, but then I looked at the song, and in it, Miss Adelaide has a bad cold. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I can do that, because if I hit a clam or it's not good, I can blame it on the fact that the character has a cold. Right, and, right, right. You know, so I did that, and that was, and then my love was musical comedy. And all of a sudden, boom, not being a journalist, and it, it, uh, my whole life changed because there wasn't a major in journalism at UCLA. Wow, yeah, I'm glad you did that switch. I think you did the right path there. I appreciate that. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel.
I love hearing those early roles of you know theater arts and all that stuff. But to take us into how, how did the Carol Burnett show actually come about? Because you'd been on various CBS shows leading up to that, right? For almost like a decade, like Gary Moore, Paul Winchell, a bunch of shows. But you didn't want to do another sitcom. You wanted a variety show, and and you know at that point there hadn't been a woman hosting a variety show. So how, how did you stand your ground and, and get that variety show? Believe me, I didn't have to because I had a very strange, odd, unusual contract with CBS that was signed. Uh, I signed with them after I left the Gary Moore show for ten years <clears throat> to do uh, each year I would do a guest shot on a sitcom and a special. Uh, but then the, there was a caveat, a clause in the co- contract. I had a very good agent said that within the first five years of the ten years, if I, Carol, wanted to push that button, CBS would have to put us on for 30 one-hour variety shows, comedy variety. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll probably never do that, you know. But right, then right. towards the end of the fifth year, my husband and I had just moved to California, and, and we put a down payment on a house, and we said, you know what, maybe we better push that button. So I called, it was the last week of the fifth year, and I called uh, the vice president in New York, and uh, I said, I'm calling to push that button, and he he totally forgotten. He had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and, and this was the, the week between Christmas and New Year's. And he said, well, well, let me get back to you. <laughs> you know, I've said this before. I think they got a lot of lawyers out of Christmas parties that night, you know. And uh, he <laughs> called back the next day, and he said, well, yeah, I, I see that, Carol. But, you know, uh, comedy variety is a man's game. And uh, he said, it's Sid Caesar, it's Milton Berle, it's Jackie Gleason, it's uh, Dean Martin now, and on and on. And uh, he said, but we would love you to do, they had a sitcom they were talking to me about uh, called Here's Agnes. <laughs> I, I said, I don't want to be Agnes every week. I want to have costume, different costumes. I want to be different characters. I want to have music. I want to have a rep company like Sid Caesar had. I want to have yeah, guest yeah. stars and dancers and all of that. And they had to put us on. So it wasn't that I held my well. The only way I held my ground was to say, "No, I'm not going to do here's Agnes," but uh, they had to put put us on the air, and they didn't have any faith in us at all. And I wasn't too sure myself, but at least we said, "Well, we'll get 30 shows out of it right. for the for that season." And uh, then it took off. And uh, in fact, at the end of the 11th season, they wanted us back for a 12th. But I felt that it was time to leave before I was asked to leave. You know, we we were doing okay, but uh, I think you know, in 11 years we just started kind of repeating ourselves a little bit, and I thought well, it's time to move on. And so we had 11 wonderful joy-filled years for which, I mean, I'm so grateful. And it's even, even today. I mean, you know, people are. I get fan mail from 10-year-olds teenagers who watch us on YouTube or who have bought the DVDs or the, that we put out and we're on MeTV and everything and uh, the mail I get, it, you know, from young people and also the comments on YouTube are just, it's amazing. Well, it's, it's because funny is funny, you know, a 10-year-old can watch that and still laugh and, you know, you are breaking up on set, that was always the funniest part. <laughs> I know. We never did it on purpose. Never. Right. 
Never, never, never. It was it was always God bless him, Tim Conway's fault. He was out to get us. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one that would always break you. Yeah. Well, I know we just lost him. You know, talk to me about Tim and what made him a genius there and, and cracked you all up so much on the show and why you miss him so much. Well, I miss him as a human being too because he was as nice as he was funny. That's a very kind, sweet soul. And uh, but he, uh, when he was in his comedy, he was fearless. And we would take two shows on Friday. Uh, we would do the first show, uh, and we would tape it with an audience. Uh, and Tim would do it exactly the way we'd rehearsed it all week. Then he, uh, he would go to the director before the second show and ask, her, you know, how did it go in the first show? Did you get all the shots and everything's fine? So then, yeah. And so then, then he would do stuff on the second show that had never we'd never seen him do. And uh, I would say nine times out of ten, that's what we used because it, it was pure gold. <laughs> and he he would just he 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 would come up with stuff. I, I the the mind of his was just absolutely, uh, in my view, genius. Uh, he things that, that you nobody would ever think anybody would do. He would do. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he 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 was just. That's who he was, and I, I've often said maybe there's some there's people as funny as Tim, but I can't think of anybody who was more funny than Tim. Right, absolutely. Well, we miss him. You know, every, everyone's heart broke when he passed because we all loved him. Uh, of course, it, it's it's collaborative. It was you and Tim, but your other co-stars. Can you just one one at a time? You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I say Harvey Corman. I think he was probably one of the most brilliant comedic actors we have. Yeah. Had uh, he there was nothing he couldn't do. Um, he uh, he he could imitate. I remember we would do a lot of uh, movie takeoffs and everything. And one of my favorite ones was when he was Ronald Coleman in uh, Random Harvest. We did a takeoff on that, and mm-hmm. he just he 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 became Ronald Coleman. He was he was Clark Gable in uh, in our Gone with the Wind sketch. Yeah. Uh, it was like he was channeling, you know. And then he, there was no accent he couldn't do. There was there were times when we would do like a takeoff on an Italian family or whatever. I would do a generic Italian accent. He would do one that maybe was from Southern Italy. <laughs> you know, right. It was just amazing what what he could do. And he was. I I often say, and I say this, you know, when I'm doing uh, my show, my Q and A show that uh, Harvey, uh, because he was so good, you want to play, if you want to learn to play a good tennis game, you want to play with a better tennis player. It only makes your game better. And that's what Harvey did for me, for all of us. He he made our game better because he was so good. And uh, he was very sweet with Vicky because Vicky was 18 and had no really professional experience at all. We really took a chance on her. But uh, I felt that there was something there, and I, and I turned out to be right. Uh, but Harvey, uh, like the first uh, season, she was pretty shy and kind of uh, awkward and, and uh, scared and all. And he took her under his wing, and he taught her uh, how to listen when you're in a sketch, not just wait for your cue to speak, how to deal with props. He even helped her with accents and things like that. And Vicky was like a sponge. She just 
she ate it up and learned, as she says, she learned her craft in front of 30 million people every week for 11 years. <laughs> when did she and you all come up with the character of Mama? You know, how, how did that come up? That happened when uh, the, our two writers, uh, Dick Claire and Jenna McMahon, came up with that, and I read it, and I said, this is Really, it's it's brilliant. It's like little one acts, and there were no jokes in it. It was all character driven, and so first they wrote Mama for me, that I would play Mama, and we would have a guest star play Eunice, and I said, you know what, uh, Eunice speaks to me. <laughs> I think I could do Eunice better than I could do Mama. Then right. we were going to hire an older actress to play Mama. And Bob Mackey, our costume designer, because we didn't know we were ever going to do it more than once. And our costume designer, Bob Mackey, the brilliant Bob Mackey, said, well, look, look, let's just put Vicky in a fat suit and take her eyelashes off and, <laughs> and put a gray, slap a gray wig on her and let her be mama. <laughs> we said, okay. Well, it just turned out to be the best, the best idea ever. And here I am, 16 years older than Vicky, and she's playing my mama. <laughs> Brilliantly, I have to. And she, she really got into that character. And then I thought when I read it, uh, it I thought they were more southern or southwestern. And uh, so I threw in the accent, you know, to talk talk like that because my background is Texas and Arkansas. Sure. And Vicky picked up on it, and Harvey. And so when we did it in the first run through, the writers were horrified because that's not the way they saw it, uh, you know, they were both from uh, Chicago, and they said, we're going to, you're going to alienate the entire South, you know, and they thought <laughs> it was a, a very wrong choice to do, but it turned out to be right, and they later uh, agreed, you know, that, that that made it twice as funny by doing it with those accents. Totally. It's so funny that it got its own spinoff. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Well, you know, we've talked Tim, Harvey, Vicky. Tell me what was so fun about working with Lyle. Oh, well, this was an idea that Carl Reiner had uh, when we were talking to him about uh, when I'm going to start my variety show. He's a friend. He said, you ought to get a good-looking, hunky announcer that you can go gaga over the way I used to do on Gary Moore's show. You know, if we had Robert Goulet on or Peter Lawford or something, it'd bring me out, Carol, who's this kind of man-hungry kook. And it was funny at the time. And so uh, that's how we got a whole, We, uh, you know, all these very good-looking guys came in to audition. And Lyle walked in. Of course, he was very, very handsome. But he also had a sense of humor in the audition. So he got the job. And after a while, you know, I stopped doing that, oh, my God, I'm in love with Lyle bit, you know, because it, here I was, a, I was a grown woman and I had children. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So I said, I don't want to do that anymore with Lyle. So instead of just that, then we started putting him in sketches, and he turned out to be a very good sketch performer. So it was just... Uh, an ideal situation, you know, we, we all got along, and uh, that's very important. And even though my name was, you know, it was a Carol Burnett show, uh, we it was a true rep company. We supported each other. I would There were many times when I would support Tim in a sketch, or Harvey would support Vicky, or Vicky would support, you know, so it was a true, it was like summer stock. 
you know, and right. there would be sketches where Tim would be the star of the sketch, or Harvey, or me, or Vicky, you know, and that's I think that's what made it work, because uh, nobody hogged the, lim- the limelight. We wanted everybody to score a touchdown. Well, you scored a lot of touchdowns. <laughs> Some might say you ran up the scoreboard. <laughs> uh, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but I, I gotta ask. It's it's like the iconic scene. You know, you gone with the wind. You know, grabbing that curtain rod. I know we're radio, but try to paint us a picture of you know where you were when you came up with that, ripping that curtain rod off, and and how heavy it was on your shoulders coming down the stairs. Uh, the thing was. The writers had written that I would run up the stairs and then come down with the draperies just hanging on me, you know, just kind of draped over my shoulder. And Bob Mackey, the genius that he is, said, that's not that funny. <laughs> and so when I went into costume fitting that week, I, I would always go on a Wednesday morning. He said, I have an idea for that curtain dress. And I said, what? And I went into the dressing room, and he had it there on that curtain rod, and I fell on the floor. I said, this is going to be one of the funniest sight gags in the history of television, and it was. And that was all Bob Mackey's idea. And, uh, in fact, he, he designed everything all of us wore for all 11 years, which amounted to averages 65 costumes a week. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and do the math, in 11 years – uh, it amounts to a little over 17,000 costumes he designed. But, you know, everything, all of us wore, and the wigs and the clothes, everything. And uh, he, and I'm so thrilled for him because he recently won the Tony for uh, costume design for the Cher show on Broadway. Right, right, you're right. And, and speaking of awards, earlier this year, the Golden Globes, they basically invented a Life Achievement Award for you. It's one thing to get a Life Achievement Award, but to have one invented for you, you know, how touched were you by that? Uh, it's one of the greatest, I mean, for me, what a what an honor, you know. Uh, and uh, they said they were going to create the category because they didn't have one for Lifetime Achievement in television, and they were going to create it for, uh, for this year. And I said, then they were going to give it to me as the first recipient. And then they said, no, we're not only going to do that, but we're going to name it after you. And I was just totally gobsmacked. It was like, wow. You know, so that was quite, quite an honor. Yeah, because they had a movie one named after Cecil B. DeMille. So, you know, now it's I'm ready for my close-up Miss Burnett. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, you've been more than generous with your time, and, and I'm sure you're a busy woman, but it, it's been a blast talking with you, and I've loved hearing all these stories. I'm honored. Lovely talking to you, too, Jason. Thank you so much. I'm tugging my ear right now. Oh, and me right back at you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.